Please do be seated. Oh. And if you could, could you keep your Bibles open to the reading that we just heard from the Gospel? Uh, that was Mark chapter 11, and it was on page 1009. Mark chapter 11 on page 1009. And you'll also find this an outline in the very middle of your bulletins, which I hope will be helpful to you. Start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our blessed Creator, transform us by his holy word. May he grant me faithfulness, clarity, and love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and ever acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Good evening. You just have to have trust in God. Have faith in God. It's a kind of advice we often hear, isn't it? And perhaps it's a kind of advice that we often give, particularly when it seems that things aren't going that well. But how much is it really wise to have faith in God? And what kind of a faith can we justifiably have? And what would that look like in view of the way the world is today. Well, today, as we resume our series through the Gospel of Mark, we will see Jesus call on his disciples to have faith in God. And through the events of the passage, he will help them to understand what that means and what they can expect as they do so. Now, our Lord, when we last opened Mark, was on the road to Jerusalem, having just passed through Jericho. And since then, he's continued on to the holy city. Yesterday, he arrived there riding a donkey in the wonderful events of Palm Sunday. Hosannas were shouted, <coughs> branches were waved, cloaks were set before him, and he entered unmistakably, God's king come to save and rule his people. And then, yesterday evening, climactically, the Lord went into the temple. Malachi had promised long ago, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and here he is. But just when it seems like all history and every holy hope is reaching its highest height, like the kingdom of heaven must come immediately, Evening falls, and because it is late, our Lord retires out of Jerusalem to Bethany to spend the night. Doesn't it feel kind of like when your favorite TV series ends an episode right when it's really tense and exciting? But unlike a TV drama, we do not wait in ignorance, because Jesus has already said what is going to happen next. We're going, he said, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Humanly speaking, there is hardly a plan to inspire confidence and trust in your disciples, is it? 
But you see, if they are going to follow this Jesus, they're going to have to learn to have faith that God is still working his purposes out despite every appearance to the contrary. They need to have faith in God. Well, in due course, that night gives way to the day, and that's where we pick up our passage today. Mark chapter 11, and we're in verse 12. Jesus is now on the way back from Bethany to Jerusalem. When feeling hungry, he sees a fig tree in the distance in full leaf, and he comes up to it to see if he might find some figs on it. But he finds none. After all, as verse 13 says, it's not the season for figs. So he speaks to the fig tree, verse 14, and he says to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And on one level, that seems rather strange, doesn't it? But what Jesus is doing here is something which the Old Testament prophets also did. He's teaching something symbolically, visually. Here, his disappointment at the lack of fruit on the fig tree is a picture of his disappointment at what he saw when he visited the temple last night. And the curse he pronounces is a picture of what is about to happen when he goes back to the temple this morning. So without further ado, we follow him back to, verse 15, the temple. And here he is. He's driving out everyone who buys and sells in the temple. He's overturning the tables of the money changers. He's knocking down the seats of the pigeon sellers and stopping anyone bringing anything through the temple. This is quite something, isn't it? What's going on? And what has upset Jesus so much? To find the answer, we need to look at what he says as he does it. Have a look with me. That's verse 17. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Let's take that in order. First, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, if you look in your Bible at verse 17, you see there's a little tiny letter D just before my house shall be called a house of prayer. Do you see that? And then if you look across to the middle column where all the tiny words are and find a 17, there's another little D and the words cited from Isaiah 56. Seven. If you're a bit lost, look in your bulletin. There's a picture of where we're going. Okay? And what that is saying is, Jesus in the temple is quoting from that part of Isaiah 56. So if you want to understand what he's saying, we need to first go back to that part of Isaiah 56. Come with me. It's on page 735, page 735. But keep your finger in mark because we're coming back pretty soon. Page 735, Isaiah 56. And let me read to you from verse 1. Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. The passage goes on to show what that salvation and deliverance is going to look like. And it turns out that a big part of it will be the fact that when that promised kingdom comes, not only will God's particular people, Israel, draw close to him in the temple in prayer. 
but people of every nation. That's what he says in verse 6 and 7. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps a Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. <coughs> That's pretty major, isn't it? In the coming kingdom, the temple will be central to God's plan of salvation for all the world. So now turn back with me to Mark and we look at the next part of verse 17. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying instead of it being that place where God will be able to draw all nations, they've made it something else. They've made it a den of robbers. And but Jesus doesn't explain exactly why he calls it a den of robbers, and nor does Mark. And the word robbers here, actually it's a very general word. It could mean bandits or thieves or outlaws or gangsters or even rebels. The emphasis here is on what it has made the temple become. It is like a den where robbers and outlaws might hide out. And that has seriously bad implications. But to see that, we need to go back to the Old Testament again. If you follow the cross-reference, this cross-reference E, it takes us to Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 11. That was our Old Testament reading, if you remember. It's on page 757, if you want to go there. Here in Jeremiah, we find God rebuking his people and telling them to turn away from their sin. And to do so, he sent Jeremiah, this is verse 1 of Jeremiah 7, to go and stand in the gate of the Lord's house. That is, stand in the temple and say, verse 3, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust those deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What's the problem? They seem to think that their ceremonies and their temple, that the outward leaves of religion will somehow save them from being judged for their evil. But God says, no. Listen to verse 8. He says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you've not known and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name, and say we are delivered only to go on doing those abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it, because of the evil of my people Israel. What is God saying to them there? He was saying, the temple will not protect you from judgment, and in fact, if you do not turn back, God is going to do to them and their temple 
just what he first did to Shiloh and the people there. Shiloh is where the tabernacle, which is like the mobile temple, had first been when the people came into the land of Israel. Did they change their ways? No, they did not. And so God did what he promised. In came Nebuchadnezzar. The temple was pillaged and burnt to the ground. Jerusalem was destroyed. And his people were taken far away into exile. Turn back with me to Mark. Now do you see, here is Jesus, standing in the finally newly rebuilt temple, pronouncing the very same word of judgment that Jeremiah had given so faithfully so many years before. Ouch. It's as if he's standing there and saying, God's going to destroy you and this temple, and it's the leaders that are to blame. Strong stuff, isn't it? The crowd, verse 18 says, were astonished at his teaching. That just made the chief priests and the scribes fear him all the more and seek to destroy him. At this point, Jesus withdraws once again, back to spend the night in Bethany. But the next morning, and this is verse 20, as they pass by on the way to the temple, they see that fig tree again. But now... It's withered all the way to its roots. Peter remembers and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answers, saying, verse 22, Have faith in God. When they've seen the fig tree, they've seen the picture of the great destruction that Jesus had hinted at in what he quoted in the temple. If that is the case, if the temple is to be destroyed, then how will Isaiah's promise that the temple will become a house of prayer for all the nations, how is that going to be fulfilled? And how is Jesus ever going to rule over that kingdom if the chief priests and the scribes are now conspiring to kill him? It looks, doesn't it, like the plan is failing spectacularly. But then again, Look at the fig tree, withered to nothing, just by his word. Can we really doubt that God will not destroy even the temple if that's necessary to bring his, temp- his kingdom? Have faith in God. The kingdom will come and nothing will prevent it. Not the chief priests and the scribes rejecting him, not the corruption of the temple, not even the king of the kingdom nailed to a cross and dying will prevent the coming of the kingdom. In fact, it is quite the contrary, for Jesus knows that that corrupt temple must be destroyed in order that it might be replaced by a new and eternal temple to which all the nations will indeed come, as Isaiah said. And he also knows that it is only through his death on that cross that he will be the sacrifice for the sins of his people, that he will be able to save them and bring them into that kingdom. Jesus knows that everything that's happening here, as unlikely as it seems, is God's will. And so he says, have faith in God. 
But what kind of a faith is he calling them to here? What's it like? I know that many of us, perhaps even most of us, we've been let down by people we've trusted so many times that actually we, we limit how much we trust anyone. We might allow ourselves to be a bit hopeful, but we're usually fairly prepared for the idea that they may fail us as well, aren't we? But that's the exact opposite of the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to. The faith he calls us to is a complete, unreserved confidence in God. Confidence which ultimately comes primarily because God is God, and we know that, therefore, his will will be done. His kingdom will come. First place we see Jesus teach them that is in verse 23. He says, Truly I tell you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, I know some people will try to make that mountain represent a very difficult boss or a very tough exam or a sickness or some other big worry that we may have. But when Jesus says this mountain, actually he means this mountain. Mount Zion the mountain upon which the temple was built, the mountain that Isaiah called my holy mountain, the specific mountain on which our psalm told us God chose for his name to dwell. Why does he tell them then to pray for the destruction of that mountain? Simply because it is God's will that it will happen. And if they are praying according to God's will, then they can be absolutely certain that it does happen. That's what our epistle also said, if you remember. But not only this. Because Jesus is God's king, who's come to save and rule his people and bring the kingdom, then actually they can also have a certain faith that God will destroy everything that stands in the way of that kingdom. And he will make right everything that is wrong in his creation in order to bring his kingdom. Which means that, as Jesus says in verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Have faith in God, he says. However, having faith and confidence in God and the kingdom he promises doesn't just mean sitting back and waiting. It also means being ready for its coming. It means living in expectation of the kingdom they are trusting will come. And the big thing Jesus highlights here is forgiving others. Just as God sent his son for their forgiveness. As verse 25, he says, And when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What's the application of what we've seen here for us today? Uh, what's the application of this passage? Well, first I want to look at what the application was for them then. The big application for the disciples then was to have faith in God and pray accordingly when they looked at those hostile religious leaders, the mockery and the crucifixion of their king, 
his coming death, it looked so unlikely and so impossible that God was bringing his kingdom. Just, I guess, as it looked so impossible and, un and unlikely that that mountain would be cast into the sea. But Jesus taught them, have faith in God and pray that it would happen. And for us today, actually, the same big application holds. To us, too, it looks so unlikely that God is bringing the kingdom if we observe what we see around us. The poor are getting poorer. Our newspapers are full of most terrible allegations of corruption and worse at every level. Just this week, we have seen both deadly terrorist attacks in Jakarta, a deadly siege in Burkina Faso, and Malaysians becoming suicide bombers just this week. And all the while, the, the reign of evil by ISIS in Syria seems to continue unabated. It's not even to mention what we see in our social media, for abductions and snatch thefts and assaults and murders. It looks impossible that God is bringing his kingdom, doesn't it? But then again, it looked impossible that God would be casting that mountain into the sea. But yet he did. The temple in the city was entirely destroyed in AD 70 at the hands of the Romans, just as he said. And then again, it did look utterly impossible that a man who was dying on a cross could live and reign as king of God's eternal kingdom. But yet Christ did rise again on the third day, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Have faith in God and pray with confidence for his kingdom to come. There's a secondary application, isn't there? And that relates to the forgiveness of which we spoke. The disciples then were trusting in God's promise of his kingdom and his king who would bring forgiveness. And so Jesus taught them to prepare for the forgiveness it would, he would bring by forgiving others. But for us, it's a little bit different because for us, the king has already come. And through his death bearing our sins, he has already brought us the forgiveness of the kingdom. So the application of this changes slightly. Instead of forgiving in anticipation of the forgiveness of the kingdom, we forgive in response to the forgiveness the king has brought us through his death. As Colossians says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so if there are people you know that you haven't forgiven, well then live accordingly to the faith that you have in God. Mirror the gracious yet costly forgiveness he gave you in his crucified king. And if you have anything against anyone, forgive. Have faith in God. His kingdom comes just as he promised. And forgive as you also are forgiven. As a bow our heads for a word of prayer. And let us pray together for the coming of that kingdom in its fullness. Certain and sure that it does come. 
that God's will will be done. As our Saviour taught us, we are confident to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.